Well, I am, I've been encouraged at how people have been processing last week's message, in particular this passage on Romans. If you were here last week, you would have heard me say that this section of Romans that we're going to do is perhaps, if not the, one of the most controversial and debated passages in the New Testament. This is a difficult passage to figure out who is Paul talking about? Who is the man in this passage? So in verses 14 through 25, you will hear Paul use these words. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do. But I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it. But it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one who does it. But it is sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. Now this passage is debatable because you will have solid people who interpret this passage in different ways. There are some people that say, well, he's clearly talking as a Christian. He is describing his day-to-day -day Christian life. He's talking as a believer. This is the in fact, this is how I feel. Right? Many people will hear this and say, this is my experience. I want to honor the Lord, but then when I give in to sin, this is what it sounds like. This is exactly me. He's talking as a believer. But then there are people who say, well, there's no way he's talking as a believer. There's no way because there are things that are missing from this passage. What, what do you mean I have no ability to do it? Believers have the spirit. How can you be a believer and use these words and talk as if there's no way you can obey God and you can only agree that the law is good in your mind but you have no ability to obey God so you have solid people who think this is, he's not a believer Paul's talking as himself as a non-believer before being a Christian and you have some that say no, Paul's talking as a Christian day to day experience I ended last week's sermon saying I don't think it's either of these and I said I would explain today. Today has come. Yay. Now there are some people there. There are other. There are other ways that people have interpreted this passage. Some have said Paul is personifying Israel, like he's speaking on behalf of the nation of Israel in relation to the law, because they would say no, there were some Jews in the Old Testament that wanted to do good. I mean, Paul considered himself a Pharisee and blameless. According to the law. 
there are some people who think, man, this is he talking about addiction? I had a couple conversations with people this week that were like, I see this and, and see addiction. But this is the language of addiction. And while this is the language of addiction that a Christian could say I identify with, the question is, is that what Paul is talking about? Is Paul right here talking about addiction? That would be strange for the context of the passage for Paul to talk about addiction. In fact, you would be hard-pressed to find anywhere in the scripture that it addresses addiction in that way. And if Paul were talking about addiction here, I don't think Paul would be expecting this to be the perspective that people who have addiction, who are addicted to things, feel. Paul wouldn't want you to identify with this, saying, I have no power over this if you're a Christian. He'd want you to identify with what he says in Romans 6, that sin will no longer have mastery over you because you believe in Jesus Christ. But I said, I do not think that he's talking as a Christian in his day-to-day -day experience. And then I don't think he's talking as an unbeliever. And I want to give two reasons why for each of those before we move forward. The reason why, one of the reasons why I do not think he's talking about a believer in the day-to-day -day experience is because this would be antithetical to the rest of the New Testament, the language of the New Testament. The language of the New Testament does not lean towards you're a Christian and you have no power over sin and you can't battle it that way. This language that Paul uses, it sounds very definitive. When, if someone says to me, I feel like I have no power I know what I want to do is good, but I, have the, I lack the ability to do it. It's not clear that he's speaking of one particular habit. He's talking about the sin nature as a whole. If he's a believer, then this would be the only time in the New Testament that him or any other writer would use this kind of language. In fact, to the contrary, someone like Peter in 2 Peter 1 would say this. In verses 5 through 9, here's what Peter says. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things, this is important, the person who is not growing in these qualities, that would essentially be what Paul is saying in Romans 7, I lack the ability to do it. Listen to what he said. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. So here's Peter's perspective. If you're not growing as a Christian, it's not because you don't have the power to grow. It's because you've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten your past sins have been cleansed. In other words, you've forgotten that you've been forgiven by Jesus and no longer have to give in a sin just because you're tempted to do so. Peter would disagree with the interpretation of Romans 7 as the day-to-day -day Christian experience. Because Peter's perspective is, man, you've forgotten who you are. In verse 10, he says, so work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Make your calling and election sure 
In other words, press in. Grow in these qualities. 1 John 2, verses 1. 1 John is a book that many people say is the assurance of Christianity book. In 1 John 2, when he says this, my little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, not but when you sin, but if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You see, in our day and age, we expect to sin more than we expect not to sin. We expect to sin more than we expect not to sin. And so it's just a given. It's just it is what it is. And we don't have the distinction from sort of what it was like to be a believer in God before Jesus and to see the vast difference that Jesus makes. We can look at our lives maybe before Jesus and see how different things are, but we carry some of those habits and patterns with us, rightly so. But the expectation in the New Testament is not that a believer has faith but no works. I mean, Paul's saying, I have faith, the law of my mind, I agree with God, but I'm unable to carry it out, which means I can't obey it. I can do no works. That would be antithetical to what James says in chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. There's this expectation that if you have genuine faith in Jesus Christ, it's going to show up in how you live. And a lot of us, because we expect to sin rather than not to sin, we're not even clear on people who are not believers that we say, well, I don't know, I'm not sure. But Jesus is pretty clear. No good tree bears bad fruit. So whatever's coming out is the product of what's in. It's not like, hey, I really love the Lord, and I'm reading my Bible, and I'm praying I really love the Lord, but then I'm just sinning like crazy all, all day. Jesus might say, well, you're not far from the kingdom. In other words, you know, you know the truth, but you're not obeying the truth. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commands. How can you obey the commands if you lack the ability to obey them? Romans 7 reads like a person who has faith, but is unable to do any works. For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. So you practice sin? Right. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. Even the letters to the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Jesus is directly talking to the believers in those churches. And he says to almost all of them, you need to repent. Get yourself together or else there are consequences. So the expectation from Jesus is that you know how to obey. You can obey. You need to obey or else there are consequences. So for me personally, to think that Paul is describing his day-to-day -day life 
as a believer in Romans 7, 14 through 25, for me, is antithetical to the rest of the emphasis in the New Testament. I could have picked verses from each letter that Paul himself wrote that would contradict the reality. That a believer, even though we feel like that at times, even though addiction can feel like these words, the New Testament leans in a different direction. That you have power even over addiction. Should in fact, you can go to a non-Christian organization and even they believe you can fight that. Yep. Even they wouldn't say, hey, well, that's it, man, you're done. <laughs> There's a bunch of groups, all our church hosts at AA meetings. Not all of the people that come to that meeting are believers. Our brother William can come up here and tell you, we got an AA meeting. Some of the people don't come in with faith in the Lord, but they come in with the hope to change, and some of them do change without putting faith in the Lord. Mm -hmm. So even a non-Christian mm -hmm. has the ability to resist even addiction. So, but a Christian can't? I find that hard to believe, at least from what the Bible says. So does that make him an unbeliever then? I don't think so. And I, I listed, last week I listed reasons for both of these from people much smarter than me. So if you think this, well, that's just what you think. Listen to last week's message. You read, you read John Piper's works and you read Augustine and all these people who are way sharper than me. An unbeliever? I don't think he's an unbeliever in this passage. One of the reasons why is in verse 4 through 6, he already identifies himself as a sinner in the passage. He identifies himself already as a sinner, but then moves on to the present tense. He identifies himself in the past tense. Look at verse 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death. This is Romans 7, verse 4. You also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. Notice that these are all you, second personal pronoun. He's saying you, 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 talking you. Then he says, you belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit. You see how the you changes the we? See, when he says you, he's talking about them living and being in sin to the law because Paul doesn't think of himself as in that way anymore. He's out of that. So he transitions from you when we get to the good part, the Jesus part, he goes to we. Since you belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit from death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. Paul already identified himself as an unbeliever, but, but he moves from that. Now, this is us. This is who we are now. This is who we are right now. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, famed theologian, did six messages on Romans 7, 14 through 25. John Piper did 22. Man. <laughs> I told y'all talk to me nice. I'm not doing 22. I'm not doing six. Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones, here's what said of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said that he doesn't agree with either option. And I agree with him. I just come to a different conclusion than him. But I agree with his premise 
that Paul wasn't speaking as a believer describing day-to-day -day faith, nor was he speaking as himself before he was a believer. But here's what was said of him about him when he led his congregation through this passage. He said, it was said of him, as he walked the congregation through Romans 7, he reminded them to proceed with humility. He encouraged them to seek that unction and anointing from the Holy One. For the matter with which we are dealing is beyond the realm of grammar and intellectual dexterity. He didn't believe looking at verb tenses settled the matter. Okay, in other words, because some people came to me and said, well, isn't it just in the original language in the Greek that I get it? I was like, man, most of the people that disagree know the Greek very well. So Martin Lord Jones' perspective is, you can't solve this by just looking at the verb tenses in the Greek. If it were that simple, then it would be one position. The fact that people who study the Greek, who are heavyweights throughout church history, come to different conclusions, mean we don't get it. Here's what he thinks happens. He thinks Paul is using a rhetorical device called the dramatic present. Noting that preachers, including himself, often use that literary device. So he thinks what Paul is doing is a, it's called the dramatic present, which is essentially when you talk about something in the past tense in the present. I do it all the time. So when you, you've heard me tell my story about almost being martyred in India. When I tell the story, I talk as if it's, hop, it's happening right now. I don't tell like, yeah, I was about to say, I walked into the neighborhood and these people came around us and they surrounded us and they started screaming. And I'm describing it in the present tense even though it was 2004. So he's saying he believes that Paul is doing that. That he's describing in the present tense talking about himself <coughs> and trying to obey the law. Good godly people are on both sides of this debate. And many theologians have explained, took many sermons to explain it. In doing this message, I realized it would be impossible to say everything I want to say in one message. Six? <laughs> no. You can make black people are very con concise. <laughs> we get to the point. Two. Two messages. Two messages. <laughs> Alright, so here's the most commonly asked question about Romans 7. Who is the man that Paul's referring to? Who is the I? In order for us to answer this, I want to remind us this morning of a few very important details to understand at least my perspective, and I think even Martin Lloyd-Jones, but he doesn't use the same logic that I'm aware of. He may, I haven't studied his position fully on this. All right, so I'm going to ask a couple questions and we're going to walk through them to help us understand. We are not going to start at Romans 7, though. We're going to start in Acts chapter 15. So if you want, turn to Acts chapter 15. Because here's the first question that we have to understand, for, to me, to understand what Paul is talking about in Romans 7. Now here's the first question we're going to ask. Why is Paul talking about the law so much? Why is he talking about the law so much in this letter? He talks about the law in a lot of his letters, to be honest, but he makes a serious commitment to talking about the law in Romans. Why is he talking about it so much? Here's the answer. 
Because the greatest threat to believers in his day, besides persecution, was, was the law, the circumcision. It was people who were saying, no, 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 no. You can't just stop following the Mosaic law. You still need to get circumcised. And you, that's the only way you can be saved. That was the biggest threat to the gospel in Paul's day. And he spends his entire ministry pushing back against that. That's the biggest threat. Now, that may not be the threat to the gospel in our day. But in Paul's day, the biggest threat to the gospel was the law. Because they were in a transition period. Before they obeyed God this way, then Jesus comes, he dies, he ascends, and now we got to obey God this way. And there are people who think, no, 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 no. We still got to obey this way. Let me show you from Acts 15. In a couple of places. Here we go. Verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had, sent, when they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. Now, verse 5 is very important. This is what it says. But some of the believers, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, verse 6 is also very important. The apostles and elders gathered together to consider this matter. You can hear it. Part of verse 7. After there had been much debate, then Peter said to them, let me make sure you understand what's happening. Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem to find out in order for non-Jewish people, which call Gentiles, to be saved, do they have to get circumcised the way God told the Jewish people to? And do they have to follow the law of Moses? And there were believers in Jesus that said, yeah, they do. And when they came to, when the apostles, when the elders and they gathered together, they gathered to consider the matter, verse 7, there had been much debate. So at that point, even the apostles weren't clear yet. Even the apostles who walked with Jesus hadn't given thought to, do they, do they do the law or not? It wasn't until Gentiles were being saved and the word was coming back to them and then Paul shows up and explains what he's doing that this issue becomes, well, wait a minute, what is salvation? Salvation is either you get circumcised and you follow the laws of Moses or you don't need to be circumcised and you believe in Jesus. This is the biggest threat to the gospel in Paul's day. Verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers and sisters, you are aware that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles received the gospel message and believed. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now here's what he's talking about. In Acts chapter 10, 
he had a vision of, of God putting a big sheet down over the world and all these animals and said, go kill and eat. And Peter had thought, well, no, no, I can't eat some of these animals. They're unclean. According to the Mosaic law, these are unclean. And then God said, go kill and eat. Do not call what I have made clean unclean. In other words, and it says in a parenthetical statement, thereby making all foods clean. So when people say stuff like, oh, but it says in your Old Testament, you can't eat shrimp, but you eat shrimp. Because it's not unclean. So bring me a pound of spicy steam. Babe, I will tell you where to get it if you want it done right. So these two, these men come to Peter's home. They take him to a Roman centurion who's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. He's a Roman. He's a God-fearer, which means he believes in Yahweh. He believes in the Jewish God, but he's not a Jew. Still a Gentile. Peter shows up at his house, starts to preach the gospel, and the spirit falls on them. They start speaking in tongues. Peter, this was 11 years from this moment. Peter remembers this, and he says, listen. In verse 9, he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their heart by faith. The spirit fell on them without them having to obey the law without being circumcised. So Peter's remembering that and realizes in verse 10, now then, why are you testing God? by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus the same way they are. This was a threat to the gospel. This was a big deal. So Paul's talking about the law because he's pushing back against people who are being told. And there were, there were people who were believers who thought, we still got to follow the law. And so this decision led Paul, now they said, listen, go tell the other churches, Gentiles do not have to be circumcised. It was a powerful thing. As a matter of fact, look at Acts 16. This is how powerful it was. This is how much of a tension it was that, that circumcision and, and the law was so important especially to those who were Jewish, who were now becoming Christians. Acts 16, 1-5. Paul went to Derby and Lystra, where there was a disciple named Timothy. So this is where he meets Timothy, in the book of Timothy, wrote two of them. The son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was a Greek. The brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places since they all knew that his father was a Greek. Let me explain what happened. Paul, didn't Paul had just been told they don't have to be circumcised. Paul didn't circumcise him because he needed to. He did it so that Timothy would not be a stumbling block in preaching the gospel. That's how important it was. Even though Paul knows you don't have to be circumcised, he said, listen, for the sake of the gospel, because they're going to go after that. They know your mother's Jewish. That means you've got to be and your father's not Jew, they're going to go after you. Be circumcised to show that you have respect for the law, the Mosaic law. And then we can go, then we can do ministry. We can do ministry. This is important. It says, they traveled through town and delivered the decisions, verse 4, reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem for the people to observe. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew by numbers. The Gentiles do not have to be circumcised or follow the law of Moses. But it's not like today where you tweet something or post it on your wall and everybody sees it. They have to travel to all of these cities 
to all of these churches and make sure they know headline. You do not have to be circumcised if you are a Jew, if you're a Gentile. And Jews, you cannot be justified by following the law. And just because you're circumcised, you have to believe in Jesus. This is a big deal. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to, go to Galatians chapter 2 if you want. If I don't hear any pages ruffling, I'm going to start reading. If it's an app, you should get there quick. Galatians 2. This is how serious this issue was. Paul's recounting on his time in Jerusalem. He says this. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. This is a different situation, actually. Taking Titus along also. I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. He was compelled to be circumcised, because that's how significant it was. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. But we did not give up and submit to these people, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Now, from those recognized as important, what they were, what they once were, makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to, in other words, when, I'm, when I meet the apostles, like, I'm not, like, impressed by them. Like, I, I'm just, they're important to everyone else. That doesn't matter to me. He just said, that, that's not really a big deal to him. He was saying, I was there to make sure that they didn't all of a sudden validate him. He, he heard directly from Jesus, this is your responsibility. He went to Jerusalem to make sure they know he's preaching the same gospel. And they approved Verse 7, on the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised. Since the one at work in Peter, since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. When James, Cephas, as Peter, and John, those recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked that we would remember the poor, which I made every effort to do. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Let me explain what that means. Jews and Gentiles didn't eat together. They weren't together. You talk about segregation, Jim Crow. They didn't eat together. Thousands of years. There was no way. But because of Jesus now, Jews can eat with Gentiles. It's not unclean to eat with someone who's uncircumcised. So they were eating together in fellowship. But when James had people come who believed that you must be circumcised to be saved, and Peter saw them coming, Peter had fear of man. And Peter got up and removed himself from sitting with these brothers, even though they all believe in Jesus. This is what happened. So, wait, so Paul's like, hold oh, on. So verse 12. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So this, in other words, after Peter did it, 
The other Jews were like, and it just quietly moved away from the Gentile brothers. They said even Barnabas was led astray. But these are all Christians. You see what I mean? This wasn't an easy thing. You think it's difficult to find a church now? Or to connect with a church now? Like this is the beginning, the establishment of the church. And they were trying to figure out how do we do this? Because there are a ton of people who are, who are on fire for the Lord who think you got to be circumcised. And then there are people who are like, no, you don't have to be. And they're living in that tension. And here's what he says in verse 14. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, you eating, you hanging, you don't live by the law. You know, so why are you acting like they need to live by the law now because these dudes are over here? In other words, it's like, why are you scared of them? You've been living like them. We've been all one family. And now when they come, all of a sudden now we got to go back to the law. We can't eat with the Gentiles because they're uncircumcised. It was like, you live like a Gentile now. You don't live according to the Mosaic law. What are you doing? He said, I told him to his face. <laughs> That's why I like Paul. <laughs> I like Paul. I'm going to go out. I'm going to go out like that. Change to your face. He says, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. Justified just means declared righteous. means you don't go to heaven. If you're stumbling with justified, means justified means God will look at you and say, not guilty for the sins you've committed. Because you're justified. He's declared righteous. You get to go to heaven. He's saying you can't be justified by trying to obey the law. He said, and yet because we know that a person is not justified, does not make it to heaven by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves, us Jews, have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. But because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. You see, even among the apostles, this was still a challenging issue. So Paul is committed to making sure that believers understand that yes, the law exists, but it doesn't say we're moving away from the law. And because if you stay in the law, there's going to be problems for you eternally. This is a big deal. This isn't what we talk about. This is a big deal in his day. Obedience to the law was essentially a rejection of Jesus. That's what it was. And this is why this is important to know because Paul's not talking about Jewish people who are still living in the Mosaic law that have rejected Jesus. He's talking to people who accept Jesus Christ. These are people. Peter was one of the three that was with Jesus, was there after the resurrection. And even Peter is still like, oh, I don't think they got to be circumcised, but what if I'm wrong, though? Let me just move away as if people are coming because I don't want to hear his mouth. <laughs> Galatians 5 says this For freedom Christ set us free 1 through 4 Stand firm and then don't submit again To a yoke of slavery That yoke of slavery Is trying to 
be to glorify God, trying to get to heaven by obeying the law. Listen, on the Sabbath day, right? One of the laws, one of the rules of law is don't work on the Sabbath. Okay, no work on the Sabbath. Sabbath is day of rest. Okay? The Pharisees, which would have been like the pastors of the day, had a sort of a rule book on the do's and don'ts of the law called the Mishnah, of the Sabbath. This is what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. They created this book. There were 612 laws in that book alone of the do's and don'ts on the Sabbath, what you could and couldn't do. And Jews were required, according to the Pharisees, to keep that. So if you're walking and I'm sitting here telling I dropped it, if I pick this up, is this work? Is this work if I bend down and strain myself to pick this up? Is this work? And they got to remember, they're sitting there running their mind through all the 612 laws. They'll just be like, you know what, man, I'm just going to kick it. <laughs> this is why Jesus was set up with them. Because Jesus was like, you teach don't do any work on the Sabbath, but yet if one of your animals falls into a pit, don't you call some of your boys over and say, help me get it out? How is that not work? How do you teach don't bend down and pick this up, but yet you, you do all that energy and strength to get your animal up? This is what Jesus was frustrated by. He was angry with the Pharisees for. But these were the things that they had to live by. You're constantly thinking like, oh man, did I fuck You see a dead body like, oh man, am I unclean? How close am I? You know, you're not going to pull out a measuring stick. So you sit there like, oh man, now I gotta stay out of the camp for seven days and get clean, and I gotta show myself to the breeze, and it's like, man, I'm sorry, I didn't even see the body, man. I'm just gonna keep walking. <laughs> there was so much that had to be done. This is why I call it a yoke of slavery. In Christ, it's like, oh man, it's a dead body. Let me see if this brother needs help. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. Right. Jesus is saying, what glorifies God? You notice in the Good Samaritan story, there were two religious people, right? And they did, they did what they were supposed to do. Ooh, I don't want to be unclean. Let me go over here. He might be dead. Jesus says, now nah, we'll please God with the person who said, let me help him. Let me put him in a, in a hotel for a couple of days and cover the charges. This was important. The overall context for Paul is what justifies a person. And he's trying to point out it's not the law. It's not the law. It's Jesus Christ. That's a huge perspective. All right, second thing that I think we have to know. The greatest threat to believers in that day was persecution. Here's the second thing that we need to know. It might make sense easily now. And the question is, what is sin and flesh to Paul? Okay, when we think of sin, when we read this, we think of sin, we think of it in instances like us, anger, gossip, lust, sexual immorality, Fear, all these things. We think of those in that category. And that's one way that thinks of that sin is described as being in the flesh. That's not the only way. For Paul, there are two modes of thinking of sin in the flesh. There's the instances that we talk about, and he talks about those. But Paul also sees sin, being in sin, enslaved to sin, and being in the flesh as trying to be justified apart from Jesus Christ. To him, they're different sins, but they're the same conclusion. Let me show you this. Go to Romans chapter 6.
Romans chapter 6, beginning of verse 1. We're going to read 1 through 14. Listen to the language. Let's look at the context of what he's talking about. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be like him of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since the person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, we also believe that we will live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons of unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead... Offer yourselves to God and all parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. Listen to 14. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under law but under grace. So you see, Paul is associating sin with being under the law. Paul sees trying to obey the law perfectly as sinful. Because that's trying to glorify God by rejecting Jesus Christ by following the old way. So sins connected to, so it's not just the individual sins that you do, because people did different kinds of sins. Let me explain in a minute. But what he's saying here is if you were under the law, sin will rule over you. And he's not talking about non-believers of God. Right. He's talking about people who are under the law. The people who are under the law are what? They were Jews. They're Jewish people. No one else got the law but Jewish people. If you were under the law, sin will rule over you. So even if you're trying to be obedient in the law, sin rules over you. It's sinful. Now that Christ has come. It's sinful. Now look at verses 15 through 23. Listen to sin in this context. What then? Should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves. You are slaves of the one that you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obey from the heart that covenant of teaching to which you were handed over. <coughs> and having been set free from sin, how are you free from sin if you can still sin? You became a slave to righteousness. I am using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offer the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when we were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. When you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things you were now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you have been set free from sin, and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit which results in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's describing instances of sin. So just look at the fruit of your life. What's the fruit? 
reason why Paul's doing this is because he's talking to two audiences. He's talking to two audiences. Remember in Romans, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, when he explains sort of sin and humanity. And he's talking about they worship the creature, not the creator. He's talking about Gentile sin. And then in chapter 2, he's talking to Jewish people and their sin. Because their sin was different. Their sin was different. As a matter of fact, I just read Galatians 2.15. Listen to what he says in Galatians 2.15. We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And it's in quotations, at least in my translation. It says, that we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. In other words, the sins that we commit aren't the sins that they commit. They commit different sins. We sin in trying to obey God. They sin in outright rejection of God. So he's talking to two different people. He's talking to two different types of sin. So for Paul, when he mentions sin or being in the flesh, he's not just talking about how you and I would see it. Like me and Chris talked the other day. It was like, man, I was in my flesh, man. I was ready to cut somebody out or something like that. Okay, you said, oh, man, you in your flesh. That's not just how he's talking about it. Paul would see that as the same as you thinking, well, I'm going to obey the law. That would be just as in the flesh to Paul and just as sinful to Paul. And that's how he sees it. He's talking to two different groups of people. This is important to understand who he is in Romans 7. He connects sin to you rejecting Jesus to try to be circumcised and follow the law. You are in the flesh. You are sinful. And he connects it to people who didn't know the law and who were just sinning even without the knowledge of the law. You are in the flesh and you are sinful. Now that Jesus has come, both of those are the same thing. They're the same. In fact, if you look at Romans 7, he says this in verses 4 through 6. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. Sin and the law is connected for them. If you are in the law, then you're sinful. You're in the flesh. If you're a Jew. Because only Jews were in the law. If you are not in the law, if you're a Gentile, and you're just sinning, then you're still in the flesh. It's sin. For Paul, it's the same thing. He's making sure that everyone understands that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So in the structure of Romans, in Romans 1, he's talking to Gentile sinners. In Romans 2, he's talking to Jewish sin. So when he says in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, no one can say, not me. They can't say, not me, because we're, we're, we're God's people. We're the ones that are righteous. We know what righteousness is. Paul would say, yeah, you do, but you can't do it. You can't do it. So he's laying this foundation out, so it's logical. He hasn't changed that. It's still here. He said, these are both sinful. And he wants to make sure you know that. So he interchanges. And it's the context that helps us better understand, okay, what's he talking about? Who's he talking to? 
These churches are mixed with both Jews and Gentiles. And the Jewish people would have more of a tendency to be self-righteous towards the Gentiles because these are people who are unclean, don't know the law. This is huge to understand what he's saying in Romans 7. Lastly, the last point for today. Who is Paul talking to? And that's pretty obvious. Who is he talking to? If Paul were talking to Jewish people who were not believers of Jesus in the synagogue, then Romans 7 would make a lot more sense. Easy. Because he's describing to them what trying to keep the law is like for Jews. But he's not talking to them. As a matter of fact, I don't, there are moments where he's talking to Jews, but he's not talking to Jewish people who are rejecting Jesus in these letters. Unless they're people who he's talking about in a negative way, trying to harm the church. Look at Romans 7, verses 1. Verse 1, he says, Since I am speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters, don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he lives? Then he gives this analogy. These are people who know the law. He calls them brothers and sisters. These are people who, who are believers in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit. But now we have been released from the law since we died and withheld us. He's saying these are all genuine believers in Jesus Christ with Jewish backgrounds and Gentile backgrounds living in a time period where they were transitioning from one way to obey God to another. Now for us, that's hard to figure out. How does that work? Me and Vicky Vick were having lunch earlier this week, and we were talking about Catholicism. And I said, you know, it's kind of like that. So let's say you're a Catholic. You grew up in a Catholic church. You believe in God. You go to Mass. You do all that stuff. You, you, you pray to uh, Mary and different saints and you pray the rosary when you confess your sin you go to a priest yeah, so where you going I gotta go see the priest man I got two o'clock point with the priest and you sit down and say forgive me father five sins and you confess the sins and get a couple of Hail Marys and whatever else they tell you to do and that's the way you glorify God and it all works and all of a sudden you have a friend who's evangelical who shares the gospel with you and you're like wait a minute whoa man I believe this I want to follow Jesus so now you're saved and you come to the evangelical church, you're like, well, this is really different. This is really different. This is way different. You sing different. The messages are different. I'm used to 10-minute homilies. He's been preaching for an hour. Man, how long do y'all go with this? <laughs> you know, it's really different. And then when it's time, so then your friend calls you. You're with your friend, and you're like, oh, man, I'm struggling. What's wrong? All right, sin, all right. I'll be back. Well, you know, I got to go meet the priest. Well, no, 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 no. You're a Christian. Now, you don't have to go to a priest. I don't. No, you don't go to a priest and confess your sins. You can pray right now and ask Jesus for forgiveness. You don't go to a priest. Remember in Mark 15, when Jesus died, the curtain was torn in two? That means that we all have access. You don't have to go to a priest. And oh my gosh, so they ask for forgiveness. And then they pray, Mary, mother of Jesus. They whoa, whoa, what are you doing? What are you doing? You don't, you don't have to pray to Mary? Oh, I don't? No, 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 no. You don't. No. That's not how you, you don't glorify God that way. You pray to the Father. Our Father, God in heaven, how do we, we pray to the Father. You don't, have to, you don't pray to Mary the same. Mary can't hear you. <laughs> Mary's not listening. She's not, her prayer closet is closed. <laughs> this is 
not Chronicles of Narnia when you're going to unlock that thing and walk through. This is, her closet is closed. You know, you start thinking all this stuff. It's like, oh my, oh, where, where are you going? Oh, I got to go pay this money because my, my father-in-law died and, I, and he's in purgatory and I want to pray and have money. He's like, we don't have to do that. We don't have to do that. So it's this transition. It's like, no, 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 don't do that anymore. That's, that's not what honors God. Here's what honors God. Do this. That's kind of what this is like. But a much deeper sense. Here's how you honored God before, but now that Jesus has come, boom. The law was good, yes, because it's from God, it's spiritual. But the law, you were incapable of keeping it. And God was tolerant and patient only because he knew at some point Jesus is going to do it. I mean, think about Genesis 3, when God tells the serpent, he said, this woman will give birth to a seed, and he's going to crush your head. You will bruise his heel. So before humanity, when it was just Adam and Eve, God had already let it clear that, that someone's coming that's going to take the authority of Satan. Now, in John 12, Jesus said that, said as much. He said, he said, I'm about to be crucified, and when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. He said, the enemy of this world is about to be cast out. In other words, Jesus understood that when I die on the cross, I am fulfilling the promise that God made to Satan in Genesis 3. So God allowed the Jewish people to have a law and a system of sacrifices and things for forgiveness of sins because he knew that ultimately all sins would be forgiven when Jesus came. So now that Jesus has come, you can't do this stuff anymore. You can't do this anymore. That doesn't honor the Lord. That's actually sinful now because he's given Jesus. What you going to get a couple of doves for to get killed? You know, you're going to get a dove and kill a dove. And now, now it's a problem. Let the bird go. If it returns to you, it always comes. <laughs> His point was, Jesus is the sacrifice. God satisfied. Now follow Jesus. Now live this way, what we're telling you. That's the real issue. And that's what Paul's after. So let's recap. The biggest hindrance of Paul's day was the law of circumcision. That was his battle. Everyone has their battle. Martin Luther and the Reformation was Catholic Church. Paul, it was the Mosaic Law, circumcision. Right? Obedience to the law is just as sinful. So trying to obey God through the law, now that Jesus has come, is just as sinful as not being Jewish and just sinning and doing whatever. You are in sin, you are in the flesh. It's the same thing. He describes flesh and sin in conjunction with being justified. That's important. When Paul talks about a slave to sin and these things, he's thinking in context of being justified. How am I declared righteous before God? Well, the law came, but it's sinful. It, may, it revealed, the laws are sinful, but it revealed sin in me. This is an important point. And he's talking to believers. Believers. In Jesus Christ. Meaning, it was possible in Paul's day for a genuine believer to think, I still need to obey the Mosaic law. It's possible. In Acts, it said the brother, the believer, stood up and said, they got to obey the law and get circumcised. It's possible for genuine believers to think that way. So when Paul is talking to the church, He's not thinking unregenerate Jew and then Christian. 
He's thinking Christians who believe in Jesus who are susceptible to these things. Having said that, then who is Paul in Romans 7? Well, he's definitely a believer. But he is not describing day-to-day -day sin. And we'll talk about why next week. I told you two messages ahead of time. Don't be mad. Don't send me no emails, no thumbs down emojis. <laughs> said two, two messages. Martin Lloyd Jones, this is six messages. I'm sparing y'all two messages. We'll get into that next week. We'll answer three more questions, and then I think it'll be, it'll be clear, at least from my perspective. All right, let's pray. Father, your word is, is very deep. And if, if we are, if your word that you left us to follow you and understand you is deep like this, then we can only imagine who you are, how deep you are, as one who has, who has left us this word. This is a small fraction. This is just for us to know who you are, to know who we are. This is a small fraction. But there will come a day where we will see you face to face and we will spend eternity getting to know you. For up to this point in the last 2,000 years, there have been millions of books written, billions of sermons preached, and yet we're still trying to figure out who is the man in Romans 7. <laughs> The depth of which you are, God, is incomprehensible. And yet you make yourself relevant. You became a human being so that you could die for our inability to either keep the law if we were Jewish back then or our pursuit of sin, not knowing the law even existed. Outside of Jesus Christ, no one can glorify you. And so, Lord, as we, as we live in a different day and age where the, the pressures on us as a church are not the Mosaic law versus following Jesus, as we get into this a little bit more next week, as we think about our own lives, help us to think about what it means to, to follow you and to live in the Spirit. Or to live according to the law as the flesh, but to live in Jesus Christ as the Spirit, and that's where life is. And even though we can relate to things that are said in the Scriptures, help us to relate to the things that describe our identity in the way that position us to move forward. Thank you for your word, for your glory and our good.